0: Sex talk with Eric and Miley Cause sexuality is tough. And okay, sexist isn't good enough. No, sex talk with Eric and Miley. Well, hello folks. Welcome to Sex Talk with Erica Miley. Erica Miley here. I have a wonderful guest with me today. I'm actually nerding out a little bit because um, I absolutely love his stuff. This is Dr. David Lay. He's the author of The Myth of Sex Addiction and Insatiable Wives, Women Who Stray and the Men Who Love Them, and tons of other amazing things And that I'm really excited to talk to you about today. We're going to jump into Sex Addiction. I've been promising this episode to my good listeners and I wanted to bring on somebody that I feel like has, has the pulse of this. So down to it, I really want to start with something very, very 101. So like culturally we have this, I mean, I, I know you've heard this before. I have people who call me who say I have sex addiction. And my first question is usually like, okay, where did you hear that? (laughs) Where did that come from?
1: Well, I mean, you know, typically the judgment is made, anybody who has more sex than me must be a sex addict. Because clearly there's nothing wrong with me, there must be something wrong with you. If you're getting laid more than me, it's because there's something wrong with you. You know, I steal that from uh, Kinsey. You know, he said definition of an nymphomaniac was anybody who has more sex than therapist. The problem that we have right now is that the idea of, you know, we have culturally adopted this kind of term addiction to really d- describe anybody who does something more than we like. And, you know, you can be addicted, addicted to, you know, tanning beds, addicted to the Internet, addicted to video games. I mean, we found this amazing article from 1941 where a uh, psychiatrist was writing about children of the day who were addicted to those those radio crime shows. And she described that, that, you know, these radio crime shows worked on these kids just like alcohol did. And it's unfortunate because basically the term addiction has become watered down. It's become this kind of meaningless kind of concept. Basically, like, like if you remember the word moron and imbecile, they were, they were clinical words that meant something you know, 100 years ago. Now they just mean anybody that we think is dumb because society adopted these words, started using them in these, in these colloquial ways, and so they lost precise meaning. The precise meaning behind the word addiction has really been lost. The best best anybody can really kind of tell you now is addiction means when your brain shifts from wanting something to needing something. And and the story I tell often is that, you know, if you take alcohol away from a long term alcoholic, they can have seizures and die but nobody in the history of the world has ever died from blue balls. Mm-hmm. So we, we shouldn't Fair? be talking about, yeah, that's <laughs> right. yeah you might feel like it. You <laughs> might feel like you're going to die if you don't get to have sex right now. So basically we need to be moving on to a more precise kind of language. And, and the unfortunate thing about the the addiction kind of model is that it's been driven by the 12 step, the 12 step kind of uh, group and modality. and. The 12-step model is an abstinence-only model where, you know, you must never drink again. You must never use this substance again. But sex doesn't work that way. And the reality is alcohol doesn't work that way either. Most people who are dependent on alcohol get better on their own, return to a moderate level of use. And... When we say that sex is an addiction, or when we say that porn is addic- an addiction, it's giving it's giving two very important messages. It's giving one the message that this behavior, the sex or the porn, is the problem, and number two, the solution is stop that fucking behavior. <laughs> well, it it doesn't work like that, and so now we're moving into this really kind of fascinating sort of area where. Research is coming out day after day now in ways that it had not for years That's really helping us to better understand what's going on with these people who feel like they're addicted to to sex or, or, or or porn and we're learning some really neat stuff and I'm talking a lot. You can shut me up anytime. Oh, not, but.
0: You know, I would let you be here all day. You know, I'm really excited about this. So I, I think what you're saying is really, really important because it's something that I, I hear from clients. I hear from listeners. I hear this worry, like, I am doing. I am doing something that is absolutely impeding my life, and it. I, I do want to make sure, and I know you do this too. That it is se- compulsive sexual behavior is a thing. That is something that people can deal with. And he's he's giving me a face that I don't know. Um,
1: sort of, kind of. So, <laughs> at least you know, in the so present, I don't like the, so compulsive yeah.
0: sexual behavior.
1: again compulsion you know and i sound like a i sound like a very esoteric kind of shrink when i talk about this but compulsion is is tied to anxiety compulsion is a, a behavior that we engage in to make an obsessive thought go away and typically a, a compulsive behaviors are not in fact rewarding or reinforcing and, you know, like like flipping the light switch a hundred times to make the thought that the house is going to burn down. That is not in and of itself rewarding. And so the problem with the term compulsion is that, again, it makes us think that you have to do this behavior. But the interesting thing is people who self-identify as having compulsive pornography use— Use less pornography than most yes, people. Yes, absolutely. But they feel worse about it, and and why do they feel worse? The prediction of having a feeling that your sexual desires or your sexual behaviors or your use of pornography, the prediction of, of those feelings being out of control, is religious conflict. Religious conflict and one other thing, I'll point that out in, in a minute, but. Because what happens is that religious people who grow up in, in conservative religious households, they're not taught to understand, self-manage, recognize, or normalize their sexual behaviors or desires. And so then when they come up, they actually try to suppress them. They make them go away. And there's fascinating research from an Israeli researcher named Defrati where he actually showed that the the stronger a person's religious beliefs, the harder they try to make thoughts of sex and masturbation go away. The harder they try to make those thoughts go away, the stronger the thoughts become. And so the people end up in this spiral, Where They try to make these thoughts go away. And then as the thoughts get stronger, they hate themselves. They feel like they are an awful, sinful, immoral, unhealthy person. And it feels like an addiction. But just because something feels difficult to control doesn't mean it is difficult to control. And so when I work with people around these issues, those are some of the things I try to do. I try to to normalize these sexual concerns. And I was reviewing research from this remarkable uh, researcher named Sam Perry is from Oklahoma just yesterday. And Sam is an interesting guy because he's from a religious conservative background. Um, his initial publications about two or three years ago were saying pornography is causing divorce. And he had this, lo- this, this big research. And I was like, you know I, you know, I got some problems with this. Well, the really interesting thing is Sam's a good scientist and he, he listens to people like me and others who were raising questions, he started asking more questions in his research. And his he has just recently published research now that shows that it is in, in couples where pornography was connected to divorce, he actually found a way to statistically remove the variance of pornography and separate it from the variance related to masturbation. And he found that in these couples, it was not actually pornography that was causing the problem, but it was masturbation. And it was that these couples were not talking about masturbation, they had unmet sexual needs. Oftentimes these couples, You know, they're not having sex as frequently as one of the partners would like. And so then that partner masturbates more frequently, typically males. When a male feels sexually dissatisfied within a relationship, he is more likely to to, to report that his use of pornography feels out of control because he's using the pornography and masturbation as a way to meet these sexual needs that he has no language or ability to negotiate within his marriage. And he feels like those needs mean there's something wrong with him that he's that he's having to do this kind of quote outside the marriage in some way, shape, or form. And and Perry just published research just, I want to say yesterday, with data showing, for instance, men who are religious who describe their use of pornography once a month as compulsive. And, you know, I've treated people with obsessive compulsive disorder and they would fall on their hands and knees begging and pleading to only have that problem once a month people with with obsessive compulsive disorder struggle all day long. So I don't, I just honestly don't think it's even fair to use that kind of language. You know, I'm talking about, sometimes I'm, you know, if I want to talk real clinical, I'm talking about, you know, subjective feelings of sexual self-control difficulties. But more often, I am just talking about maybe even a, a, problem, a sexual behavior problem. Now let's talk about why it's a problem. And that unfortunately is the missing piece that, you know, again, when we call it compulsion, when we call it sexual addiction, it's the sex that's the problem. But I call this sexual shiny object syndrome where whenever sex is present we get distracted and we blame that as the issue when the reality is there's all these other things going on relationship conflict religious conflict you know most men use masturbation and pornography use as a way to cope with negative feelings typically stress depression and anxiety and so overwhelmingly when i see men who've gotten in trouble for using too much porn or whatever that is Overwhelmingly, I find that these are men who don't have other coping strategies, and porn is a fucking amazing way to make your brain change how it feels because it it turns on some of the sexual centers of your brain and, and turns off some of the stress centers of your brain, and it's really, really effective at that. But if you're sitting in church and you're stressed out, looking at porn probably isn't a good strategy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It
1: depends on what church you're at. Uh, But but I tell so I tell men, it's fine for you to use porn that way, but you need some more strategies. Let's broaden your repertoire. Unfortunately, historically porn and sex addiction treatment programs, you know, when they would see those guys, they would say, Well, you need to stop that porn. Yeah, stop
0: well, then be sober
1: in quote, quotation mark. That's right. And and then they create this situation where they take away the guy's only ways to feel different. They don't give him any other strategies to see how he feels. And now they tell him you should be ashamed anytime you want to use that, which creates this awful shame spiral. Which leads to the guys hating themselves more, feeling worse, and knowing the only way I can change how I feel is to watch porn, which then I'm going to feel shitty about. It's it's insidious, it's dangerous, it's iatrogenic. I mean it it is causing th- this shame attack on pornography and sex is causing the very pain that people are using to justify um, this disorder.
0: I know you get this phone call too. This is a phone call I get a lot from couples from various backgrounds. The one person walks in on another person masturbating and then someone miraculously now today has a, a sex addiction. Or I get exactly what you're talking about about this. They've, they're coming to me after they the one partner has been an SA. Sexed anonymous, and some of the things that they talk about is that they 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 have all of the tools stripped away from them, and then on top of that, there is no absolutely no talk about what what a sex life could look like for 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 this partnership in whatever form it is, and and it leaves them with this this darkness, this this shame spiral that they just, of course, they can't control it. Of course they cannot recover from it.
1: Sadly, most of the folks that are promoting these kinds of concepts come from religious backgrounds. Uh, Sex addiction is diagnosed by religiously-based therapists far more than secular therapists. And that's not to bash religion. Religion is a very healthy, positive thing in people's lives. It reduces uh, risk of substance use and, and emotional disorders, but it increases chances of sexual dysfunction because religions have not typically done a good job at teaching people how to normalize and and understand and develop healthy sexuality because they have been more focused on, you know, act-based models of sexual health, you know, sex outside marriage is unhealthy, sex within marriage is unhealthy, penis and vagina sex is healthy, penis and anus sex is unhealthy, heterosex is healthy, homosex is unhealthy. And, They're very focused on what you do sexually as opposed to how you do it. And so what I talk to my patients about with these issues is, you know, we live in a different world now. We live in a world where um, we are accepting of homosexuality, where we are increasingly accepting of non-monogamous relationships, and we are recognizing that you can be a person of integrity and develop ways to do these sexual behaviors in a healthy manner. So long as you understand and accept your sexual desires and learn how to now negotiate and talk about them from a place of respect with your partner and Unfortunately, you know, we we have this this my way or the highway kind of approach to sex that if you're not doing it the way I think you should then there's something wrong with you and Unfortunately, I just don't think that that's productive. It's, it's not very productive for most couples. The neat thing, you know, and, and I cuss a lot, but, you know, people who cuss more are more honest that's because dangerous. we're not filtering the information. Yeah. We're not filtering the information before we give it to you. But, even though i cuss a lot as i talk about these issues pastors and ministers around the country are coming to my trainings to learn how to talk talk about sex with with their patient with, with their pastor with their congregations and such because they're recognizing this is a big big issue and telling people well just don't watch the porn, you know, porn is satanic, or, you know, porn is a public health crisis, etc. Talk about it, talk about the distraction. It's interesting. All of the states that are passing laws about, you know, to restrict access to pornography, they are also passing laws to protect access to guns. They are identifying pornography as a public health crisis, but protecting people's access to high capacity magazines for machine guns and stuff like that. Yeah. As far as I can tell, there's about two guys that died over the past two or three years as a result of pornography. One guy in Japan had a like two-ton collection of pornographic magazines. He had obsessive-compulsive disorder, and the magazines fell on him and smothered him. Another guy was shot to death by his wife because she was so frustrated that he kept adding pay-per-view porn back onto their cable package, and so she finally pulled out a gun and shot him. As far as I can tell, those are the two deaths caused by pornography. But guns and cigarettes,
0: for instance, kill millions of
1: people. Why are we not worried about those issues? Why are we so focused on pornography?
0: We love to blame the Puritans for things, but I mean... This has been in at least American cultural, our cultural water (laughs) forever. And something that I I love that I've heard some researchers say is that like, well, every time there's a technological boom in something, we figured out a way to do something about sex with it. And with the internet, it's porn,
1: (laughs) It's porn, but also, you know, it's teledildonics. I know a couple that while one partner was in Antarctica for six months, they used remote controlled sex toys over the internet to have sex with each other. And I think that probably reduced the chances of infidelity while they were apart because they could maintain that sexual connection. That's extraordinary. But we don't talk about that stuff. Instead, we, you know, there's always this panic. I mean, when, when the post box was invented in the 1850s in London, the postmaster general later, who invented it, he later said that he, he, he regretted it because it led to an epidemic of female infidelity because now women could communicate with strange men without their husbands or their parents or the postman keeping them pure. And every new technology leads to some change in relationships and in sexuality as people look at it and say, wow, you know, I could, I could do this. You know, deep fakes. You know, we've got Congress yesterday talking about the, you know, the, the real dangers and issues of deep fakes, And one of the big uses of deep fake technology right now is to make porn of people that you would really like to see naked having sex, but you can't. And so here is this way to take this fantasy out of your head and put it in the computer for other people to see and for you to watch and make it feel real. That's good and it's scary and it's, and it's weird and we're going to have to adapt to it. And I guess my, my, my sort of real challenge with, with all of the panicked reaction to sex is that there's always this, we should just stop. We should just put on the brakes. That should not happen. We should not allow that to happen. Welcome to the real world where <laughs> we have to accommodate and adapt and adjust to these issues. And that's where success happens.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So I do want, I do want to ask this question because I, I have a lot of listeners who are, who are, who are brand new to even exploring the idea of their own sexuality, or they're, they're actually, they may even be looking for sex therapy. Like if that person was just about the phone, what, what would you say to them? Like, what would be that first thing that, that you would encourage them to do? You know, I'm, i am I am
1: exploring this strategy of inviting people to sit down and figure out what your sexual values are. What are the things that you prioritize? What are the things in sex that you think are important? What are the things that you know? What, you know, when you think about good sex, what is it? Is it is it about orgasm? Is it about connection? Is it about cuddling? Is it about this kinky behavior? Is it about being a moral, spiritual, religiously you know um, acceptable person as you are being sexual? Sitting down and figuring out those values, I call it your sexual priorities. That helps you then figure out, and we start to look at sex as a multidimensional thing rather than just sex, right? And when we start unpacking it, then the next question is: well, where'd you get those values? One of the questions I ask people often is, who's your sexual role model? How did you learn? How did you learn to be a sexual being?
0: Oh, oh, I want everybody to write that down right now, right now. Take the air air buds out of your ears and write that down. What a hell of a question! Isn't that good? Yeah, Woo! I'm very proud of that one. Woo! I'm getting goosebumps over here. Um, I think that's a fantastic way to like really unpack this. Sexuality is dynamic. It is a whole part of us. It is not just this one thing we do with other people.
1: And unfortunately, people only really think about sex. They're taught to only really think about sex when they're horny, and when we're horny you know, we are more impulsive and we have less judgment and it's a little more difficult to, to, you know, fit that kind of sexual stuff into our ethics and our, our, our self-identity. So when I start asking people to think about sexuality in these ways, it takes us now into the direction of how to make sexuality a part of who you are. And I think that that's how we move forward. I mean, most of the patients that I've worked with over the years who struggle to control their sexuality, you know, one man had, that I worked with had two or three different therapists who called him a sex addict. His wife called him a sex addict. His Their pastor called him a sex addict. And the guy, you know, he would get caught looking at gay porn and he would get caught going to dirty bookstores. He sat down with me and in the first session, you know, I had him do the Klein sexual orientation grid. It's a, It's an assessment instrument around sexuality and orientation. And And he said, I'm bisexual. And okay, so now we moved forward in treatment, helping him to integrate and accept that sexual identity as part of himself. And so now when he found himself looking at a guy with a nice ass, he didn't hate himself. He didn't didn't think to himself, that's my addiction, that's my disease. He didn't try to make those thoughts go away. Instead, he just said to himself, oh, there's my bisexuality coming out. And as he accepted these things, he no longer viewed them as alien. He he no longer viewed them as something to fight. He gained greater control over them through acceptance and adjustment and accommodation, integration, rather than exclusion and suppression. We as human beings, you know, we, we don't work so well trying to stop behaviors, but we can change behaviors. So that's my goal, is helping people to change how they do these behaviors rather than trying to make the behaviors go away because the behaviors are important for some reason let's understand why and maybe change how you do them so you can do it in an ethical and thoughtful and in way with integrity
0: the listeners who are listening to the podcast can't see me make all of these nodding and faces and i'm just i'm like yes yes absolutely quick break from the action folks action. (laughs) I just want to tell you about my Patreon. Every week I bring you guests and seriously, lots of sex nerdery. (laughs) Help me keep doing that by becoming a supporter. What do you get in return? Cool perks. For real. I am going to be doing shout outs, stickers, a bunch of stuff. So check it out at ericamiley.com forward slash Patreon. That's E R I K A M I L E Y dot com forward slash Patreon. I hope to see you and see more of you by becoming a Patreon. Thanks, guys. I really wanted to ask you this question because I know you've been doing this work a long time, um, and the, and in the, in these the the years that you've been doing this. Has there been anything that has surprised you? Research that surprised you, or maybe even resonated with you in a way that maybe took you? How you've been in this field?
1: Hmm. Well, I mean, I'll answer that question first. I'll say that you know the the thing that really surprised me. I came at this from a you know, from a fairly academic kind of perspective. And I didn't realize how scared people are about these issues. I mean, there was a New York Times article on Sunday that that talked about the death threats that I get for talking about these issues, because there are, you know, there are groups who view, you know, changing sexual values as the end of the world. And they're really, really scared. And, and I, I'll be honest, I didn't, I didn't realize how deep some of those fears and anger um, were, and I've changed some of the way I talk about this stuff as a result, but I still think that this work is really, really important, and I think that people's fear reflects, actually, the degree to which we have allowed ignorance and morality to intrude into sexual medicine, and unfortunately, we now have to unpack that. Yeah, in terms of research that, that that sort of you know shocked me and that made me sort of rethink some of my thinking, there has been some research by. There's a, a really remarkable researcher at Bowling Green State University in I think Ohio, a guy named Josh Grubbs, and he has really unpacked a lot of research around people's attitudes toward towards pornography and such like that. And he and Sam Perry, the researcher I mentioned before, recently have some data showing that religious people, if they just look or think about masturbation, they can oftentimes be okay with masturbation. They have less moral judgment about masturbation, but it's pornography that is really driving their catastrophic kind of moral judgment and crisis. That surprised me because I thought, um, and and I do a lot of work with Latter-day Saints and Mormon groups in Utah and such, they have very, very strong negative opinions about masturbation. And I thought that that attitude was probably driving a lot of this anti-porn issue. But I'm looking at this research, I'm rethinking, and, and I'm seeing that you know, the, the church, whichever church we want to talk about, religious conservative bodies have identified pornography as sort of the satanic hallmark of changing sexual values. And they have programmed people to view pornography as this, you know, this absolutely catastrophic moral social crisis, which is what's driving a lot of people's fear and panic about it. And then we don't teach couples how to talk about it. Couples that have that watch porn together have healthier sex relationships, but couples where one partner watches porn in secret are more likely to be unhealthy. And that's not about the porn. It's about the secrecy. It's about the different sexual values. And I think the more we start to unpack those things, the more effective we can be and the more effectively we can help people.
0: Absolutely. What a beautiful place to end, except for, I want to, I want to tell people how to find you and how to find all the wonderful work you've already done. How do people find you in the world?
1: Uh, You know, the easiest way to find me is on Twitter um, at Dr. David Lay. Last name's L E Y, not Lay uh, as in, I should have, I could only be a sex doctor with the last name Lay, right? Twitter is the best way to find me. And then you can find just reams of my writing on psychology today. I have a blog there going back, going back almost 10 years now covering all these issues and really kind of covering my development across all of this work in these fields.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I can attest to that. I will make sure that the link to the psychology is in the show notes. Folks, I will say thank you for you that are listening. Thank you, David. I really appreciate you coming on the show and spending time with us. And I will make sure that folks, if they do have questions, they will find you on Twitter.
1: Absolutely. Hey, Erica, thank you. Thanks for doing the show. This kind of stuff is so important. You reach people and you touch people, hopefully not on the show. (laughs) But, but thank you for doing this, you know, getting this kind of information out there is how we change the dialogue. So thanks for doing it.
0: Thank you folks for sticking around to the end and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening, folks. Please rate and review on iTunes. It helps this podcast get found. If you leave a five-star review, let me know about it on any social media and I'll shout you out on the podcast. You can find my website at ericamiley.com. You can find me on Facebook, the gram, and Twitter. See you all next time.